Welcome to Breaking Down the Buzz, the podcast where we explore the thrilling world of tech industry leaders. From AI to the latest trends, we cut through the noise and decode the tech buzz and share our collective insights and insider knowledge. Welcome to Breaking Down the Buzz, where we peel back the layers of hype to reveal the true innovators shaping our digital world. Our guest today is Bryce Johnson, a trailblazer in the field of accessible technology. As the co-inventor of the Xbox Adaptive Controller and a principal researcher in accessibility and inclusive design at Microsoft, Bryce's journey from designing digital libraries for the visually impaired in Canada to spearheading groundbreaking projects at Microsoft showcases a relentless pursuit of a more accessible digital world for everyone. Bryce's story is not just about technology, it's about challenging our perceptions, pushing the boundaries of traditional design, and fostering a more inclusive society through thoughtful innovation. Welcome, Bryce, to Breaking Down the Bus. Thank you for joining us, Bryce. I'm super excited to have you. It's it's great to talk to you. We haven't spoken in quite a while. So, yeah. 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 Um, so I wanted to dig in with with you because you're I I meet a lot of really interesting people in my travels for sure. And you are one of the most interesting people that I have met along my travels. Um, we met I'm I'm on the board of a nonprofit called SOAR 365, which mm -hmm. focuses on um, providing employment opportunities for individuals with disabilities. And so we met gosh, pre-COVID, I would say, to talk about, you know, what we could be doing with SOAR 365 around inclusivity and, and technology. Um, so, you know, when, when I put this podcast together, you were one of the first people that I thought of because, again, such interesting work that you do. So if you could tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, how you ended up at Microsoft and doing what you do, that would be great. Yeah, I mean... Um... I started, um, I'm not, I'm in Seattle, around the Seattle area right now, because I work at Microsoft, but I am, I'm from Toronto, Canada. And I started at a Microsoft partner. I was actually at a Microsoft partner for about nine years, a solutions partner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we built things basically that partners would build. But one of the, the great projects that we got to build um, at that partner was um, I designed and we built the first digital library for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Oh, wow. Now, yeah, this was back in like 2002 or 2003. And, uh, you know, accessibility was always important. It always just seemed to make sense. But I, I still had a compliance mindset kind of going into that pro project. And when you worked with the stakeholders at the CNIB and their customers and, and all of that, you kind of quickly pivot to this idea of, you know, well, no, I'm, I'm designing for these, these folks. They're, they're my customers. Um, so it brings up all kinds of really interesting sort of notions of design. You know, a lot of people think of, of the disabled as like uh, the edges, I guess, the, the, the atypical. Right. Um, but the thing that you realize when you're designing is that as a designer or as, you know, any sort of person who's putting together a solution, you pick who's on the margins because you pick where the center is. And so what I mean by that is I designed a website that was for the blind and it was it was meant for them. And what ended up happening you know, not not in a bad way, but it wasn't necessarily for the sighted, right? Okay. So I marginalized yeah. people with typical vision, people who, and, and this was 2003, so, you know, websites weren't that sophisticated. Um, so we optimized the website for a blind and low vision crowd, and that might, meant that it wasn't optimized for a sighted crowd. So... It's, right. it's it's an interesting perspective, right? Like as someone who makes something, you you pick the edges because you pick where you're targeting. You pick the center. Right. I watched a, an interview with you this morning, actually. Oh, um, cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you said something that was really, really interesting to me, and it sort of shifted my thoughts around disability. And the discussion was around that... 
you know, if a person with a wheelchair goes into a building and they can't get upstairs, mm -hmm. that's not a problem with the person with the wheelchair. Mm -hmm. That's a problem in the design of the building because they didn't design for someone in a wheelchair to to go upstairs. And I can't remember the term that you used, but it was really interesting to me because it made me think about exactly that. You know, when we design something, we're designing with a, a maybe a specific person and mind. And we're not right. thinking about all of the other people that aren't, you know, sort of the atypical, and I don't even like to use that word, but atypical um, abilities. And it, it was just yeah. super interesting to me. Yeah. And I mean, that that's so that idea, I mean, there's a number of names for it. I think the most common one is the, the idea of the social model of disability. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that and that comes from the World Health Organization. Well, sorry, I, I don't know if that's where it comes from, but that's where we first heard about it. Um, in 2014, the World Health Organization redefined its definition of disability to from uh, an individual health condition to a mismatch in interactions between a person and their environment. And that's that's what leads to the social model of disability. Um, it's it's not the only model of disability. I don't want to sort of say that it's the best. You know, I think the one thing that I constantly come back to in this work is that um, I'm literally in the the business of special treatment, so I don't really have to pick a, a best. Right. <laughs> you know, like, so, um, you know, there, there are lots of models of disability, but the social model is a good one for product makers because it puts the responsibility on you. And just sort of what I just talked about, like you're picking the center. And if that center, if that archetype of what you're trying to design for happens to be you, then you have to kind of recognize what that means. You know, I think I think we don't have the luxury anymore of of design being this like kind of um, artistic ideal of like the creator inventing something from like, you know, we, we have much more responsibility than that, especially at the scale that we work at. So it's really important for us as a practice to always intentionally include people with disabilities in the in the product making process, because if we don't, we will unintentionally exclude them, which is what the social model of disability is about. Right. Like I'm an architect and I have legs and I designed my building with stairs because I didn't think about wheelchairs because I don't have a wheelchair. Right. But, you know, you have to think about people who use wheelchairs. Right. 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 So let's let's talk about the the most tearjerker Super Bowl commercial I think I have ever seen. And that is around the adaptive Xbox controller, which you are a co-inventor of. How did that mm -hmm. come to be? I, I know you've talked about that lots the of times. Commercial? No, no, the the controller itself. Oh, yeah. the controller. The, uh, yeah. the commercial the, I get. Yeah. Well, uh, the, yeah, the commercials actually got some fun stories in it too, but the, the controller came about because we were looking at accessibility for Xbox. Um, you know, I was working at Xbox at the time. I always cared about accessibility, but at the, you know, around 2013 with the launch of the, the generation of PlayStation 4 and Xbox One, there was some legal um, accessibility compliance in the U.S. that was going to start applying to consoles. And uh, so we started to look at it and I've, I've always had a, an, um, a history with accessibility. So I was super into this idea of, of gaming accessibility at the time. And then um, the, uh, the lobbyists that sort of represent the, the video game industry lobbied the FCC and said, listen, the, this is a console launch year. You can't do this to us this year. We, you know, it would be too, too disruptive. And so there was an extension placed on the console industry for two years. And so, you know, I went and did other stuff for a while. <laughs> There's always lots to do. Um, but around 2015, we came back. We started working on accessibility for the console. Things like screen readers and better closed captioning and magnifiers and, and um, controller remapping. Um, and all of those were to meet a legal compliance. But as we were doing all this, we recognized that there was this one big challenge um, was that the actual controller, the thing that you you use to use a console, um, you know, made a lot of assumptions about how people used it. You know, that whole 
that whole bias thing that we were just sort of talking about. It assumes that you have two hands to hold it, that you have two thumbs for the thumbsticks, that you have a fluid range of motion, that you have the dexterity and the endurance to hold it and the dexterity to use all the buttons. And so, and, and to use it in a very prescriptive way. And so we had to recognize that when people couldn't use our controller, um, we, we created the controller. So we were creating the disability according to the social model of disability, right? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, this was all around the same time we were thinking about a lot of these themes. So at the hackathon in 2015, Microsoft has a huge annual hackathon every year. We started looking at um, how we could make a modular controller. We partnered with a charity called Warfighter Engaged, and um, we met um, some people that they worked with. And they were vets. So the fun thing about the Super Bowl ad is most most people know about the controller because of the Super Bowl ad. And they're like, right. it's great. What it's great that you did that for these kids. And I was like, oh, we, we didn't work for kids. We we started with vets. <laughs> you know, right. our, our whole our whole. Uh, and I will say, too, that it was because we started with vets that I really genuinely feel like the, the project got off the ground. Um, you know, it was a time when a lot of these ideas were really new, even at Microsoft. And so you couldn't really go up to someone, especially in Xbox, and go, hey, you know, our beloved game controller, it's the problem. Right. Right. Like they just couldn't wrap their heads around it, something that they used all day long. So when you bring in vets, you know, who are injured in service and or have other injuries and you know, it's hard enough for a vet to integrate back into society. And the thing about vets is that anyone who's been in service for the past 10 years grew up playing video games. They all play right. video games when they're right. deployed. You know, it's a huge part of their social life. So if when they come home and they're injured and they can't play video games, they're even more isolated than veterans tend to be already. So all of these things kind of combine together. And then you have veterans on our teams at Microsoft it just becomes a really kind of a no-brainer story. It's like, well, we have to do this. How do right. we not do this? And and so, you know, it's still, I will say, it was still a very unusual project. And, and we, we had a dedicated group of individuals um, and a leadership team that was very forgiving because <laughs> we kind of just kept working on it, right? And they didn't get it. And I don't want to blame anybody for not getting it. It was, like I said, it was kind of a different time. Um, but we, we we kept working on it. We kept plugging away, and and eventually the controller came out, and we were all um, we were all thrilled. I think at at the reception of it, um, but we certainly learned a lot. I think, and I think to this day, there's lessons we learned from the adaptive controller that I don't know if we have answers to. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really funny, right? Like, um, yeah, I don't know if you want to get into that whole thing. I could I, I'd be that. interested. Yeah, no, I, I would be super interested in that. So, like, if if I gave you a hammer, there's this term in uh, product making and, and psychology called functional fixedness, right? Okay. And what it means is that the the form of an object has like a, an understanding, like in people's minds, and right. then. And, you know, when you tell them it's something different, like it's hard for them to wrap their heads around it. Like if I gave you a hammer and said it was a can opener, you'd be right. like, no, it isn't. And I'm it's like, watch me open this can right. with this hammer. Right. right. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and, and uh, so the thing about a game controller is that it is so pervasive in our culture. Right. That right. when you when you come out with something like the adaptive controller that doesn't really have a fixed form by design, um, you know, there are certainly a, the vast majority of people don't necessarily understand it, right? And the, the thing that we learned was that even people who couldn't use a typical controller didn't understand it, right? And because you don't think about, it's really hard to, to think about how to accomplish something unless you're really intentional about it when you don't have the ability. So what I mean by that is, let me give you another vet example, because this this will probably help. So if a vet loses a limb in service, they will show up and they'll talk to us and they'll go, I need a one-handed controller. And we'll be like, why? And they're like, well, I only got one hand. And 
we have to ask them to stop telling us what they're missing and tell us what they've got. Ah, right. Okay. Like, can you move your feet? Can you move your like knees, your head? Can you bite on things? Right. Like, so when you get a vet that comes within one hand, they think that because game controllers are this, they think right. they need to do everything that they can do with this, with just one of these. And they forget that they have feet and they ha they forget they have other, other body parts. And, and this happens like all the time with, with people with injuries. So you've got with people who acquire a disability through injury, you have to retrain them. Right. Now there's another side of this coin where you could be born with a disability like cerebral palsy. And we would meet people who would just be like, well, I never thought about this because I couldn't do this. So I figured gaming wasn't for me. So they already so so all of this stuff around like popular culture, right? And how objects are in our society, like makes it so that people think that when I give them a toolkit like like the adaptive controller or or even our new Microsoft adaptive accessories, um, they have to they have to really kind of like think about what they can move and how they and how they move it, um, and and what they can kind of do um, because it becomes. You know, it, be, it becomes really uh, fixed in their minds. I think like another example of this, and I'll, I'll go through this one quickly. Um, I work with a lot of people who've been here at Microsoft for 25 or 30 years. They have carpal tunnel because they've been on mice and keyboards for 25 right. or 30 years. They go see a therapist and their therapist tells them, hey, you can't use a mouse or keyboard anymore because your carpal tunnel is really bad. So you, you need to start using your voice to use a computer. And do you think those people actually go and use their voice to use a computer, or do you think that they just sort of suffer through the pain well, and I, ration I, their time? I know because I'm married to someone who has right. exactly that issue. Right. And my husband used, I think it was called Dragon Software at the yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but I think even through all of that, um, and it was a, a nerve surgery that he had, I think even through all of that, the gut reaction was to try, attempt to use his mouse anyway, even if he used the other hand to use right. his mouse. So now we're we're transferring the issue from one hand to another hand. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I, I think people don't until there's no other option, you know, you until there's no other option, I will I will say though that it is completely natural to want to do that. So I, right. I definitely like to to sit in that space of like, listen, I know you want to use your keyboard and mouse. You know, um, maybe I can do something like one of the things that we always tell people with the adaptive accessories and even before that with a bunch of other things, you can get um, these foot pedals off Amazon that are like plug into USB ports. So you could do like control, alt, shift, maybe windows and use your feet. Really? Like for those for those for those keys that you press a lot, like modifier keys. Right. Right. You could do that or or you could change the the sensitivity of the mouse. You could put um, all these buttons that are on the sides of mice that no one really ever uses. You know, you could start to leverage those. So we really are trying to figure out how to 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 get people to change their mindset about how they use things. I mean, I, I work with like some of the greatest ergonomists in the world, um, but they tell you how to not get carpal tunnel. They don't necessarily tell you what to do once you've got it. Right, right, <laughs> right, know? right. So it's, and it's tricky. Right. Can we talk about the adaptive kit for a little bit? Because again, I think that's something that most people aren't familiar with. The, the accessories or the kit? The, uh, the Really, the well, both, but the accessories okay. first, I would say. I, I know we have names that are all very um, familiar or similar. So yeah, the adaptive accessories um, was us taking what we learned from the adaptive controller. And then there was um, a colleague of mine who has a daughter with cerebral palsy. Um, his name is John Helms, and he did a hackathon project about creating an adaptive mouse. And, you know, we started to, his project was really cool. We started to kind of play with it. It was another hackathon project. This was around 2020, in the summer of 2020. Um, and, you know, he, he had these really good ideas. We started talking about all these things that I've learned since the, um, you know, the adaptive controller. And I will say, like, you know, John basically hooked up with like it was like the John start, uh, started this project and the adaptive controller team kind of like joined him. 
right? You know, right. and then all of a sudden, like we had, um, we had these new adaptive accessories, which consist of a mouse, um, a switch hub, and then um, a custom button. And we we took what we learned from the adaptive controller and we applied it to productivity. And we start, we did a bunch of things that we couldn't do with the adaptive controller. There's a lot of business rules around um, things like macros in gaming, like, you know, um, even though someone with a disability would really benefit from the ability to use a macro, um, there are certain parts of the business that think that might be cheating for someone who doesn't have a disability. So it's it's a very, you know, it's it's a charged topic. We We actually um we actually go back and forth a lot there's a lot of people out there you know it's kind of like security and usability like you know people like security right. and it's like i can't even get into my 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 thing right right, right, so right, right right um so um you know we, we we'd go back and forth but with the adaptive accessories because it was a pc device we could do macros we could we don't have those limitations, those kind of business limitations. There's lots of things on PCs that do macros. Um, so all of a sudden you you can start to do look at how do you create a system um, to empower um, people to, to be more productive. So we were looking at, at, you know, this was inspired by John's daughter who has cerebral palsy. Um, and so we would look at a mouse. Um, and the other thing that John was really into is he was, he was really into 3D printing. So it became a really important part of the project of how to sort of augment these devices through 3D printing. So whereas the adaptive controller, you know, you plug a lot of stuff into it, but it would kind of be its own base. Like we would see people 3D print stuff and glue it to the adaptive controller. And so oh, wow. we decided to create a system with the new ones with the adaptive accessories to to give people like a, a better way of doing that, like instead of just like gluing stuff. Right. I mean, right. you know, you have to respect that in that community. I do. I do often say that my biggest competitors are duct tape and cardboard. Right. <laughs> so, Twist ties. and yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you think that and I have mixed opinions on this, you know, COVID was terrible in a lot of ways. But what COVID taught us as business professionals was that people could work from home and they could work from home very productively. Yeah. And I, I haven't seen any data around this, but I wonder if that hasn't positively impacted the disability community because I think it's probably a little bit easier to provide adaptations that people can use in their homes, whereas trying to, you know, say you have an individual who's blind. Mm -hmm. providing those adaptations in a small office like ours might be a little bit more challenging. Whereas if they have the ability to work from home now, you know, I, I just, I wonder if the employment opportunities haven't gotten any better as a result of that. I mean, I would, I would definitely say that the, the, the consensus is absolutely right. I mean, there's been tons of articles about that example that you described. There was a really great, I think it was, I think it was Fast Company or something like that, where some woman talked about how, you know, she can't have a 50 inch screen for her low vision on her desk at work, but right. she can in her house. Right. right. And that makes her a lot more productive. And, and and a lot of accommodations like that about setting up environment, I think that's completely true. There's obviously, you know, not having to commute is a huge deal. Commuting is a big deal when you're disabled. Sure. Um, and so I, I definitely know um, of a lot of experts in that field of employment data for the disabled that would say that it had a very positive effect. And I mean, currently right now, if you look at the if you look at the um, uh, the labor numbers, right, um, we're at a level of, of disabled employment that we've never seen. Um, so we started tracking in the US dis um, disabled employment data in 2008. Um, it fell, obviously, when the pandemic fell, happened everyone right. lost their jobs everything fell through the floor but for a long time the disabled community was actually growing at a faster rate than the non-disabled community really yeah i can send you that data if you want to see it yeah i'd be really interested in that yeah yeah it's i mean it's pretty it's pretty uh it's pretty um it's pretty amazing the reason why i i'm sort of like humming and hawing here though is that you know there, while so many people and experts say that oh yeah working from home 
you know, really did it for people. You know, we all also, when we see people with disabilities out in the workforce, you know, we see the types of jobs they often have, right? And, you know, right. you, and, and there, another thing that happened during the pandemic, you know, the whole great resignation thing, right? A lot of people quit jobs that right. they didn't feel were fulfilling or worth their time. And, you know, it was, and this is another bit of speculation, but I, I have seen some data to, to pick this up a bit. Employers became a lot more willing to hire people with disabilities because they were hurting for, right. for, for staff. Sure. So, yeah. you know, they were, they were, were something they might not have considered before they were considering. So I wonder how many people during the great resignation, like quit their jobs and how many people with disabilities snapped them up. Right. Because when you when you look at the sectors like, you know, that have that have grown the most post pandemic and I wish there was newer data. I just saw the last time I saw it, I think the data was 2021. So we were kind of still in the middle of it. But it was like it was like it wasn't uh, office work that was picking up. It was like hospitality and things like that. Interesting. Interesting. So, I mean. I I wish I could get newer data. I do. I, yeah. I must admit, I mean, I look for this stuff a lot Yeah. because I do want to kind of understand. I mean, PBS just did a really great um, sort of uh, po like a video post on um, how, um, what do they call them? Like personal care workers. I can't remember the ex disabled. I don't know. That's not, they have a different acronym that PBS used, but they're, they're like basically like care workers. Like we can just be broader, right? right? In home like whether care. It's, right. Whether it's for the elderly, whether you're like um, a job coach or a job developer for like someone who with in support and employment, or whether you're, you know, you work in like a, like a home, like a living facility. You know, that's like the biggest employment sector in the U.S., and and it's not doing great because they don't I mean, that was another thing. Anecdotally, I hear a lot from from job coaches. I've been dealing with a lot of supported employment lately. I've been digging in there. Right. And so anecdotally, like, you know, job coaches and these care workers tend to make 15, 16 bucks an hour around there. And they're like, I, I could go get that at McDonald's yeah. and have a lot less stress. Yeah, I, I mean, I've run into that a lot in my role as a board member with various organizations, but but it's exactly that. It's that you want in-home care workers, but you can't compete with the Walmarts and the Targets and the McDonald's with the, the base salary. And it's unfortunate because the skills required are critical. You know? right. And but but I understand. I mean, people need to feed their families. You know, that's. Oh, totally. Yeah. No. And I mean, I mean, you know, I, I talk with a lot of, of job coaches, which is, you know, um, for those who don't know what a job coach is, um, supported employment in the U.S. is is for people with intellectual developmental disabilities. Um, so the the government will help fund positions for people who, who meet that criteria. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they typically um the get hired through um, a support employment agency and then they get a job coach so you know they go work at panera bread and they do stuff at panera bread but their job coach shows up every once in a while to support them right and right. so job coaches are spread really thin um right now um because of all this and um so i'm, I'm looking at trying to figure out like well how do we just make this whole system I think through through technology. I mean, you know, um, I'm I'm at Microsoft. We're thinking right. a lot about AI right now. Yeah. So so how do we actually take something that's very traditionally really hands on, and not take away the good parts of the hands onness, but like how do we use technology to get rid of some of the monotony of the work? Like you know, the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation asks for a lot of forms. Paperwork, right. right? Paperwork, right? Right. So, how do we get rid of some of that monotony so that that people can actually focus on on supporting people? Right. Right. That, that's that's a a fun little exploration we're doing right now. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'd love to dig into that. Um, I do want to talk about the Inclusive Tech Lab because I think that's okay. one of the coolest things I, I think I've ever seen. Can Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what you do there? Yeah. So, while we were working on the adaptive controller. And I mentioned sort of before how our colleagues didn't get 
that people couldn't use a regular controller. They just right. didn't have it and they just couldn't get past that block in their in their brain. So we we first started buying basically like a lot of um, specialized game controllers, things that were, were pretty expensive, um, very finicky. And, you know, um, we would basically show up in like a lobby of a building or like the cafeteria and we'd set up a couple consoles and we'd ask people to like play with these controllers, right? These, these odd ones. And, and we'd show pictures of how people would use things like that. It was sort of the, the first sort of attempts at, at uh, trying to trying to like get people into it. Right. And as we started to do that, we quickly kind of realized that like showing videos or photos or slide decks in a meeting room, like like you're like some kind of researcher, just wasn't really cutting it in the way that we wanted it to. It wasn't visceral. It, people weren't, you know, it was very academic. Like people are showing up and going, well, okay, who, who what am I learning about now? And they thought right. of it like training. Um, so we created the first version of the Inclusive Tech Lab to, to be a space where you can come and be immersed in this whole notion. Um, and we did create it at first to explain or to like really dive into how people who use non-traditional controllers play um, because we were in Xbox and that was kind of what we were working on. We were in the middle of the development of the adaptive controller when all this was happening. We basically just needed a place to demonstrate what we were trying to do with the adaptive controller. Um, and we, we started to do other things. We quickly branched out into a bunch of other sort of areas. Um, one of the one of the kind of big branching out in the early on um, was to we looked at a sensory room. Um, sometimes people oh, call it snoozling yeah. room, um, you know, because we would hear stories of like um, neurodiverse kids transitioning from school to home and having a rough transition from school to home and, and the types of of um, things that they would do to kind of achieve balance um, felt extreme. So we, we knew sensory rooms were used for that. So we just looked at like, well, what could we kind of do? I will I will say, I mean, we, we have a sensory room in our latest inclusive tech lab. Um, it's always the biggest hit. Like everyone loves the sensory room, um, right. but I really I'm still sort of playing with many, many ideas. I, I don't like I'm not ever suggesting that there's going to be like a Microsoft sensory room kit. Um, I'm not a therapist. Right. right. I don't uh, I don't. I don't practice therapy. So even our sensory room, there's certain things like I stay away from um, that. I know, like, you know, sometimes therapists come in and they go, you should have this, you should have this, you should have this. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I'm not a therapist. Right. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to practice on anybody. Right. <laughs> you know, right. like, so, so ours, ours is very uh, a sensory room light, but yeah, the, the inclusive tech lab has evolved in about uh, just almost two years. Now we opened up a new one. Um, brand new build, everything kind of done. We expanded our charter to um, other um, to, to surface, basically, um, mm -hmm. um, and education. So we look at a lot of PC things and, and Windows and, and all that kind of stuff. And we bring people in. I think that the biggest part of the evolution from the first lab to the second one, the motivations for the first lab was to get our colleagues to care about accessibility. And the motivation for the second lab as part of this evolution of the second lab was to basically be like, this is the home of the disability community on campus. Right. Like we're a big corporate campus. This is their place. Like, the, I mean, you know, we can, it can be argued whether or not we achieve this goal. Right. But we, we needed to, to say, no, when our colleagues come here and interact with the disability community, our colleagues are visiting. This is their house. Right. And that was the goal. So we wanted to make the room as accessible as possible. Um, and and we we really try to live up to that ideal of nothing about us without us, because we 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 have this space like that's why we have the space. And I will. It, it's funny, you know, um, people I sometimes get people and they go, well, what do you what is this for? And I go, well, I bring in the disability community and they and we interact in here and, and you know, like and they go, well, give me an example. And I'll be like, well, I kicked out Walmart once for a transition program to come in. Right. So, like, right. you know, like so 
Like right. we host a lot of customers, we show them what we're doing, but like, you know, it's part of this supported employment and education journey that we've been on recently. And that's just one of many journeys. We have lots of kind of things that we're looking at all the time. And um, we host a lot of local transition programs for, for neurodiverse students, just sort of between high school and a job, right? That they right. Have these programs called transition programs, they happen all across the states. Um, but we host we host those folks all the time. Um, and recently, we actually had a return visitor. We had a, a program come back for a second time with the same students. So we had to kind of up our game. Like it wasn't just like, right. hey, hang out in this cool room and, and listen to us, you know, ask you questions. It was they were like, no, you're going to we're going to come and you're going to teach us something. So we showed them Copilot. Right. Um, which was. Um, this then this was like a couple months ago, and we showed them how they could take um, a job description that they'd found online and and ask Copilot to help them write a cover letter for that job position, right? Right. And they were they were pretty happy with it because you know um, it was it gave them something to 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 it gave them a way to think about how to use AI in a, in a real productive way. Um, you know, because all these kids in these programs are like, they're all trying to build their resumes. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do. Right. Um, and it's and it's hard, right? Because they're they're especially I mean, transition programs in particular. It's really it's really tricky. Right. Right. I, I work with a, a nonprofit here locally that that provides internships for individuals um, with developmental disabilities and that can yeah. be neurodiverse. It can be all kinds of stuff. Nice. And, and the goal is to transition them from graduating high school into some sort of employment and potentially college, you know, it just depends. Yeah. And the statistics around individuals in Virginia that, that are unemployed with intellectual disability, developmental disabilities really are staggering. It's like 80%. Yeah. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable. So to have technologies like Copilot that can help them, and, and it's not that Copilot is writing the cover letter for them. It's it's helping them work through that process. Right. Yeah, and, and that's and that's really what we showed them. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because the students that we we were working with, they were they also had um, internships. So we just showed them like we put in the job description of a, a job that we just found at a grocery store is in the bakery, I think. Um, so we just pasted that into Copilot and then we we would ask the students questions. Well, tell me about what you do at your job. Right. right? And we would enter all that into Copilot and we'd say, OK, Copilot, you've got all this now. Now, now write a cover letter. <laughs> You know, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I love it. Works yes. Well. So can we dig in just a little bit more? And I know we're we're running down on time. I, I want to be respectful of your time. But can we dig in a little bit on how you see AI impacting the work that you're doing and and, you know, where that could potentially go? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to I mean. It, it's funny, you know, I, I probably I think when I started, you know, when everyone got on ChatGPT a year ago. Right. Like, yeah, I was a little skeptical and I made some mistakes, but man, it really, it really does change a lot of things. Right. And, um, and it's, it's hard to even imagine how I worked before. Right. First personally. Right. And so, you know, the potential is, is really there to really be transformative. And I, and I, and I must admit, I, I, it's, it's super exciting. There's a lot, there's a lot to kind of do there, and and beyond just like a large language model kind of ChatGPT kind of AI. You know, there's right. so much happening in terms of like um, what we can do now with like um, you know gesture and body recognition and vocalization and and all that sort of fun stuff that really can empower I think people with disabilities. But all of it being backed up by like a large language model. Um, and that information is is what's really interesting. I mean, one of the things you know, you you work with all these um, nonprofits. I'm sure you talk to to people. Um, I think one of the things that people don't really realize is how much paperwork's involved in just being disabled, oh, you know, like just yeah. existing, right? Yeah. And and so you know, you'll hear from people, and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, me filling out 
forms is a full-time job. So I think that's a really exciting kind of opportunity for a real tangible one that could that could not only really super empower the disabled, but make things better for everybody is just this idea of, um, you know, just having these personal language models of your information that right. will help you like fill out the monotony of like what your life is. Right. right. And, and how do you how do you go about that? So, I mean, you know, I, I will say that I think that's a real sweet spot for us as Microsoft because, you know, we certainly spend a lot of time on on uh, making sure your data is secure and private. Um, so we we can we can put that data in a place where you have access to it, but no one else does, right? Like how do you right. how do you start leveraging your own, you know, your own data? I think in the ways that I think uh, you know people have, might skeptically say big tech's been doing for a long time. Um, so yeah, I think right. that's super powerful. I mean, and but I, again, like just like with the adaptive controller, and just like when it's brand new, right? So I think a lot about that notion of intuitiveness, right? Right. Because when I when I talk to people about about work. And I talk to people about process. Everyone goes, well, I just want it to be easy, like an app, like Spotify. And I'm like, eh. I, I'd argue that Spotify, I mean, there's a lot of things to unpack with that. Right. I mean, the what they want is what they want. I'm not going to argue that. Right? right, right, right. But they don't necessarily realize, like, the motivation they have for for using Spotify, right? Like, I want to hear music. Okay, well, that's that's something fun to do. That's not work, right? Right. So you're gonna like you're gonna have a little bit more motivation to do that. And you know, I don't think I, I think people who think something's intuitive, um, you know, they don't recognize that they had to learn it, and now it's familiar to them. Right. Um, and, and so I think about I think about that way too much, to be honest. Uh, you know, there's this classic um, Jeff Raskin. Uh, Jeff Raskin was one of the um, original designers of Mac OS. And he wrote this essay that basically is says um, when people say intuitive, what they mean is familiar. Oh, um, I like that. Yeah. I mean, you know. 30 years ago, <laughs> Jeff right. <Raskin. laughs> um, right. you know, I, uh, but like, but, it, you know, so that's why, like, you have people who are like, well, I'm a, I'm an Android person or I'm an iPhone person, right? Like, cause it's like, no, I, my brain's wired to this, right? This right. is intuitive. This isn't. And, and, you know, it's that familiarity that we're all trying to kind of leverage. And, and why, the reason why I think about this so often is that, um, is trying to achieve this balance between empowering someone with a disability who has a really unique need and not making it too unfamiliar. Right. So I, I can think of dozens of examples of assistive technology that are really empowering, but they're just too much of a too much of a head scratcher, I think, for people to kind of like get around them. Like they 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 require too much of a mental leap. And I mean, I'm guilty of that too. You know, I will definitely admit that, you know, when in that balance of like power versus like simplicity, I lean towards power. Right. The entire the entire disability assistive technology industry leads towards power um, because we have so many people to empower. Right. <laughs> right? You know, so you know, you you make those trade offs. Um, I mean, the other thing about it is too is that. Um, when you folk, when you're trying to make something simple, you're going to focus down on someone on a, on a very specific use case. So when people would come up to me and they would talk about the adaptive controller and they would say things like, this is great, but if you just did this, this, and this, it would be so much more accessible. What they don't realize 99% of the time, they're saying, if you did these three things, it would be more accessible for me. Right. And they have no concept understandably of how pushing in one direction pushes away from another direction right so like they're they they do not have these concepts of like 
Like, well, if we go in this direction, it's going to be great for me, but who am I going to be excluding by heading in one direction over another? So with our products and what we've tried to do, we definitely, we, we try to achieve these balances. We think about them a lot. Um, but I also recognize like that, you know, those choices are choices we make and people, and there have been newer products that have made other choices and I applaud those choices. Right. 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 Yeah. Achieving that balance has got to be really, really difficult. I, I just I, I I can't imagine the A-B testing and things that you go through on everything. You know? Yeah, I, it's funny, you know, people think that we do that a lot and, and, and we don't really. Really? Yeah. You know, because I, I mean, don't get me wrong. All that stuff is multivariate testing is super important, but. Let me let's talk about um, cerebral palsy for a minute. Okay. Right. Um, cerebral palsy exhibits itself in a number of different ways. Right. You know, there's similarities, but it, when you mix it all together, everybody's different. We like to say that if you've met one person with cerebral palsy, you've met one person with cerebral palsy. So I think in traditional product development, people would go, well, I'm going to come up with version A, B, and C. Right. And I'm going to go out to my user group. And I'm going to ask my user group of like seven people with cerebral palsy, which one do you want, A, B, or C? And the trick that we see with a lot of this stuff, especially with like this CP example, is let's say uh, four people choose A, two people choose B, and one person chooses C out of the seven. Um, traditional product development would be like, oh, well, A, right? right? But, you know, you're you're eliminating three sevenths of the group. You're saying three sevenths of the group are not going to be able to use this thing. That's a big number. Right. Right. And and the thing is, is that when you're talking about something like cerebral palsy. You you know, that one that person that picks C, that's just one, it might really empower them in many more ways. Like maybe the four that picked A don't really have the same type of barriers in their lives that the person who like picked C, who, who um, you know, the one person right. who picked C has. So you have to think about not only the reach, but the impact of like what what's happening in someone's uh, in someone's experience. And, and then so we we take those results, we do those prototypes, we do that type of work, but we don't we don't use those these quantitative methods to narrow it down, if you will. Right. If anything, what we would do is we would look at A, B, and C and go, okay, what's D? How do we take the best of A, B, and C and make D, and then D, E, and F, or right, you know, whatever. Right. right? And and so. And I don't want to I don't want to pretend like it's always that pure, but I mean, that that is the the thought process. Like, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to, like, basically come up with like. Um, come up with, like, something that's perfect. I think that's another thing that's coming up a lot in our work lately, too. Um, you ever heard the expression uh, perfect is the enemy of done? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I live that with our graphic designers yeah, specifically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I'm a designer, so yeah. Yes, I get it. yes, yeah, um, exactly. You know, but it's but it's true, right? Like, you know, the adaptive controller took three years to make. Um, I'm 51 years old. I sit here every day and go, how many of these do I have left? Right. Like I literally count, <laughs> like I literally wake up in the morning and go like, how many adaptive controllers do I have left? <laughs> yeah. Well, at some point you're going to be designing for you in your 75, 80, 85. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, well, and, and that's, so. and it's funny and you say that, that, cause that's actually like, um, you know, that that's stuff that we do right now in many ways, because right. we are we we as in the same way that we're trying to look at the interrelated needs of disability and try to get as broad a group of, of disabled folks as we can. You know, one of our core principles of our inclusive design methodology is to go, well, how how is this better for everybody? Right. Right. You know, so I I will. I mean, that's always the hope. Right. I think um, I think what's odd is how. It doesn't matter how much we 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 always kind of have to go back to these fundamentals because everyone's tech changes all the time and and people forget 
you know, they're like, oh, new thing. And then they, they things right. that they they used to be really good at, they might forget. Right. Um, right. And so there, there's a lot of fundamentals that we're always kind of, we're always kind of training people on. Right. You know? Right. 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 I, I think you have never ending work ahead of you, to be quite honest, not to scare you or anything, but that that's no, I, think. I mean, and, that's... I, and I think I think that interrelated need uh, need of disability is really interesting. But, yeah, I, I mean, you know, that work with the the, um, the work that that you've done with the IDD community, that one's a that one's a big one for me because right. it just feels like. You know, I was at this event, um, this like county event for um for national disappointment disability employment awareness month um right. in december and um you know they awarded like the supported employee of the year and they talked about his determination about getting a job that he never thought he'd have and how hard he worked at it and how his employer thought he was the best at it and he'd cover other people's shifts and and no one ever thought he could do it but he worked really hard to to get it and that job was being a cashier. And it was a great story. It's a wonderful story. Wow. And I, I couldn't help but just sit there in the audience going, but we're trying to get rid of cashiers. Like, right. Like as a as like a as like a right. Right. You know, as retail evolves, like right. the need for cashiers is is going like away. And so I really am sitting here going, like, well. The jobs that we're training people with intellectual disabilities to get are going to change. Like, and and I, and you know, this this is my bias perhaps, but I don't think any job in the future is going to not have tech in it. Oh, I agree. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm with you 100. percent Yes. So, like, I I mean, how do we make sure that all of this tech is accessible? Because especially in employment, I think, and, and I'm not trying to point any fingers, but I think like. I think some of the most confusing things in in enterprise technology is the business rules that are set up by the businesses, right. <laughs> not necessarily the technology. Right. You know. Right. 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 Yes, I I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been I, I love chatting with you because it's always so interesting. I could talk to you all day. Honestly, it's always so interesting. I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm going to do some digging into the 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 data around how the pandemic potentially did and did not impact um, the disability community with jobs. Cause I'm super interested in, in I'll, diving I'll send into you some and I, I yeah. there, there's, there's a, I'll send you some and, and I, I know the sector data is the stuff that's hard to get. I'm trying to find right. it too. Right. Right. If I come across any, I will let you know also, yeah, but, cool. but thank you. I really appreciate it. And it's always a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.